And the Kezem people were becoming the smartest people on the planet at this time. So, you know, the fact that, that, that they're doing shamanism, so in other words, they're communicating with otherworldly beings, plus they're also uh, becoming the smartest people on the planet. They've got to be some kind of relationship. Uh, and this is Mount Gerizim that is the earliest and the true dwelling place of God, you know, the, the God that, the God of the Israelites that will eventually be identified by Moses as Yahweh. Um, I mean, all of the early patriarchs come to this mountain and have visions and you know, build altars to, to, the, to their God. Um, and it's said that, that this God manifests in a certain way on this mountain. And the term that's used is Shekinah. And our Shekinah basically means the presence of God. Hello, and welcome to the Spirit Box podcast, where we explore folklore, magic, the world of the spirits, and everything in between. For episode 98, we are joined by Andrew Collins. Andrew Collins is a science and history writer who's been investigating the origins of human civilization since 1995. He is the co-discoverer of a massive cave complex beneath the Giza Plateau, now known as Collins Cave. He's the author of several books, including Globeke Tepe, Genesis of the Gods, and he lives in Essex in England. Now, in the show, Andrew discusses his new book, Origins of the Gods, co-written with his colleague Gregory Little. It's a remarkable study, taking us from Globeke Tepe in Turkey to the Egyptian pyramids, from the stone circles of Europe to the mound complexes of the Americas. Andrew and Gregory show how again and again our ancestors built permanent sites of ceremonial activity where geomagnetic and gravitational anomalies have been recorded. In the show, Collins goes into how the earliest forms of animism and shamanism began at sites like the Navizia Cave in the Altai Mountains in Siberia, and in particular, Quazim Cave in Israel more than 400,000 years ago. He explains how shamanic rituals and altered states of consciousness combine with the natural forces of the earth to create portals for contact with the otherworldly realms. In other words, the gods of our ancestors were the result of an interaction between human consciousness and trans-dimensional intelligence. Collins discusses the science of quantum entanglement and David Bohm's theory of implicate order, which support his own theories on what's happening with these portals and the ultra-terrestrial, possibly multi-dimensional intelligences that appear. It's a truly, truly fascinating hour and one I really enjoyed and I'm very grateful to uh, Andrew for taking the time to come on the Spirit Box. Now, if you'd like to support the show and get two years worth of plus and bonus shows, then join the Patreon. It's the price of a cup of coffee. Well, it is for now. Obviously, with inflation, that cup of coffee is going to go up exponentially. But the show will stay the same price. All right. Let's get into it. Uh, Mr. Andrew Collins, you're very welcome to the Spirit Box. Uh, yeah, thank you for having me. And... Uh... You know, thank you to your listeners and viewers for uh, for listening to whatever I've got to say. Brilliant, brilliant. So to to kick things off, um, you've got a new title out, um, Origins of the Gods. Um, could you tell the readers a little, or listeners rather, hopefully future readers, uh, could you tell them a little bit about what the the book is about, what the area of research you're yes. exploring with the book? Yeah, I mean. You know, it always sounds bad to enter with, you know, the book that you're pushing, but I'm afraid to say that uh, as a writer, there's always one or more books at the back of everything. But um, but the, the subject matter of the book is, is actually very, very important, particularly at the moment when you're getting these incredible US Navy videos uh, released of um, so-called UAPs, Unidentified Phenomena, uh, which we're used to know as UFOs or flying saucers. And... The fact that the US military, US government are accepting that UFOs today exist um, and that 
they report that they are not secret aircraft that are being um, you know, tested by the US government themselves. Uh, obviously, there's always the possibility that some foreign power could be creating them, you know, this, this advanced technology, maybe they're drones or whatever. But beyond that is the possibility that we are dealing with uh, vehicles um, or craft or whatever you want to call them that are not of terrestrial manufacture. Um, and, you know, this, this is something that is the norm now. This is something that in the past would have been laughed at, uh, you know, in every level from school to, you know, to, to, to the workplace, to governments, whatever. Anybody that had an interest in this subject was generally poo-pooed and made to look pretty stupid. And you also realise that if you have got an interest in this subject, you have to keep your mouth shut. It's just you and a few of your nerdy mates that are actually into it. But things are changing now, you know. I mean, you've only got to turn on uh, the television at night and some of these channels are just full of UFO uh, documentaries, UFO series, you know, some of which I'm, I'm involved with myself. So we're dealing with a subject that is uh, very take, being taken very seriously today. But then the question becomes, what are UFOs? Where do they come from? Are they alien? Do they pose a threat to us? Um, you know, and what's their purpose? Why are they here? Um, so, you know, the book itself answers these questions, but in a way which you wouldn't expect from the offset. And I'll tell you for why, because I've investigated UFO cases, you know, from lights in the sky to people having abductions uh, for the last 40 years. And I concluded pretty quickly that there was something wrong in the idea that these craft were simply nuts and bolts spaceships coming down from some other planet or some other star system. They were, do, they were doing too many weird things. They, they, there was too many irregularities in, in the way that they appeared and what they did. And that's not to mention the entities which people see in association with them. There were literally not just dozens, but hundreds of different types of all different shapes and sizes. Some looked human, some looked more animal, some looked, you know, more like something out of folklore. And you just think, what the hell is going on? I mean, you know, if, if we were being visited by aliens, and I'm not saying that, that we aren't, but if we were, then surely there would be, you know, just a couple of different um, races involved. You know, you'd, you'd become quite familiar with their, their, their vehicles, what they look like, um, you know, their purpose for being here. There'd be some consistency and that consistency wasn't there. And the other problem is that there were a large number of cases where people would observe um, a close proximity uh, object and it would respond to them. And what I mean by that is that um, it would either respond to the way that they were thinking by changing into maybe something that, that, that they felt they should be seeing um, or it changed course based on you know them observing it and them thinking about it. Um, or it seemed to take a personal interest in them immediately, almost like an inquisitive animal. And so it became obvious that you're dealing with objects that were sentient in nature. Um, and this seemed weird because, you know, other than if a, a helicopter is so low that you can wave to the pilot, you know, or they've obviously got some kind of uh, infrared uh, FLIR camera system, they're not going to respond to you. You know, even if you're in your back garden waving to them, they're not going to respond to you. And so this interaction, this, this communion between us and the phenomena seemed to be unnatural and did not support the idea that we're dealing with nuts and bolts spacecraft. So, you know, I had to start thinking out the box. I mean, I wrote about this in articles on, on various occasions, but there were no real answers. But then I investigated what was Britain's first real UFO abduction and involved with a whole family of five driving along a road in, in Essex, the county that I live in. And they were on a short journey, 20 minutes. And sometime during that journey on a, a quiet country road, they see a, a, this oval blue light cross. They identify it as a UFO 
Um, one of the children is awake and he's quite excited by this. He's got his hands on the passenger in the driver's seat. The other two children are asleep. And then as they you know, turn a bend, the car headlights fail, the engine stops. Um, they can no longer hear the, the, the tires going over the road. And in front of them is this luminous bank of green mist. Um, yeah, completely engulfed the, the road before them. I mean, you know, this was not a weather phenomenon, this was something incredibly unusual. And they go into this and everything just stops. They feel nauseous. They feel as if they've come to a halt. And other than, you know, imagery that comes back to them through hypnosis and, and dreams and things like that, they're not aware of what happens next until they are three quarters of a mile further on. There's, you know, suddenly they sort of come to and they get home and they realize that three hours are missing from their lives. I mean, three hours gone completely um, when they were on a very short journey. This, this is known as the Avely abduction, by the way, for those that are, you know, that want to look it up. And, you know, I mean, I investigated and I took them to a hypnotist. Uh, I wrote up the whole thing for a um, for a, a, a two-part article in Flying Saucer Review, which was the leading magazine at the time on this subject. And that was it really. I mean, as I say, at the time, I, I was quite happy to accept we were dealing with extraterrestrials. But over the years, I, I thought about this case and certain factors about it, which didn't add up. And that's the fact that the, the, the gentleman involved, John Day, Firstly, he said that at one point he could see the car below him and he was like looking down on himself and the people in the car, you know, as if he was like astrally projecting. So you think, well, that, that's an odd thing. And it seemed as if this was happening whilst they were caught in some kind of light that, you know, that, that was of intelligent nature. But the other important thing is that when the car came out of the abduction and it was on the, the, the road again, the children were in exactly the same places as they were when they went in. Two of the children were asleep in exactly the same positions and the third one who was awake still had his arms on the passenger and the driver's seat standing up. And I thought to myself, this is, this is a weird thing because if this was aliens, would they put you back in exactly the same positions in the car and tuck the kids up and make them go to sleep somehow, you know, just, just to try and hide the fact that, uh, that this UFO abduction took place. And it just didn't seem to make any sense to me. And then finally, I think it was in 1991 or 1992, I was writing a book called The Circle Makers, which was mostly about crop circles and their connection with UFOs and lights and things. And I just, it just suddenly came to me. I thought, what if, they didn't spend three hours somewhere else, you know, like in a physical place, but that they lost that time instantaneously. In other words, for us, for what to us would be a split second. Yeah, no, sorry, for them would be a split second. But in our world, it was three hours. They would they were just thrust outside of normal space time. In other words, whatever this this luminous mist was. It was something that allowed them to enter into something that was beyond the three dimensions of space and the one temporal dimension in which we, we exist, in which it, the, the physical universe, the atomic universe exists. And that got me thinking, you know, just maybe we're, dealing, we're not dealing with physical aliens here, but we're actually dealing with some kind of intelligence that exists outside of normal space time something that could be multidimensional in nature. And that was the key really for me to start looking into UFOs from a different perspective. That in addition to the idea that we may be visited, you know, from time to time, who knows, more, maybe more frequently by physical aliens, that there was something else going on in the background, something that's being masked by our um, need to interpret the UFO phenomena as contact with extraterrestrials. Um, and that is basically the, the sort of the impetus that I've had uh, writing on various of my books, uh, most 
obviously like Quest, which came out in 2012, but this new book, Origins of the Gods, which is co-authored with my colleague Greg Little, um, that it tries to map out the idea that there are intelligences, uh, beings that are transdimensional in nature that coexist with us um, and have done probably since the beginning of humanity and that, that, that they've been nudging us in certain directions to do with innovations and technology, um, you know, and that they may well have been behind various, um, you know, evolutions in, in human civilization right up until the present day. And that, you know, maybe they're still doing it now. And that these beings exist on not just the three dimensions of space and one dimension of time that we know and love, but they are multidimensional beings. And that if that is the case, then we're dealing with entities which are gonna be very difficult to pin down scientifically because we cannot see or really totally understand four dimensional space reality. We can't do it. You know, I mean, what I, I show in the book and you know, this is a borrowing from some of the other greats of the past like Carl Sagan, the great cosmologist, and a, an astronomer who we, we can mention separately on, on for various matters. But, you know, he said that we cannot possibly understand the fourth dimension in the same way that a two-dimensional creature, a person, you know, a so-called flatlander, to borrow a term from, from a, a, a book in the past, would only see everything flat. So that if a three-dimensional object were to pass through their realm, let's say like a ball, for instance, as it passes through their three-dimensional, sorry, their two-dimensional realm, all they would see is a, a circle opening up larger and larger until it reaches the maximum diameter of that ball. And then it would, then as it continues its path through their realm, it would gradually close up until there was nothing left. So in other words, all they would ever see of, of a three-dimensional ball would be a flat plan circle opening up and closing. So how would they interpret that? I mean, I'm sure there would be philosophers in their world that, that would say, you know, just maybe this is part of a, a multidimensional form that, that we are only seeing part of, but it would only be speculation because they could never properly identify what they were seeing. And it's the same with a th the three-dimensional reality in which we're, we are three-dimensional creatures. So if a four-dimensional object were to enter into our three-dimensional space, we wouldn't see it properly. We'd see something. We'd be aware that there was, there was something there. But unfortunately, our minds would want to interpret it based upon our own understanding of reality and history and culture and contact with um, you know, supernatural beings, preternatural beings, or, or whatever it was, whether they be good, you know, like angels or God himself, whether they be bad, like demons, devils, or whatever. It would all have to be based upon our perception, based on our cultural and religious upbringing. And, I mean, none of this is new in a way. I mean, you know, Carl Jung was talking about the identification of UFOs in the 1950s. I mean, and he said that our interpretation of them and the way that we perceive them is based upon human archetypes, archetypes that have existed for not just hundreds, but probably thousands of years. Um, there have been very enlightened uh, UFO researchers along the way who have also come to similar conclusions, um, like uh, John Keel in the 1960s and 70s, most famous for writing the book, the, the Mothman Prophecies, obviously made it a blockbuster film. Uh, Jacques Vallée, who was a consultant for NASA. Um, and of course, as I say, Carl Sagan himself, um, you know, he, he understood the idea of multidimensionality, but he also accepted the idea that, um, that, that humanity had probably been visited by extraterrestrials on countless occasions. He wrote a whole paper that was um, that was published in 1963 on this on this very subject, um, and he believed in, in in aliens, and you know believed that we should investigate UFOs. But the problem was, is that when he became a consultant to NASA himself, 
they said to him, you got to drop this stuff. You know, if you want to get on with us, drop the concept of aliens, drop the concept of UFOs. You know, it will make you and it will look, make us look really stupid. Drop the whole thing. And it's for that reason that various people today think that Carl Sagan was anti-UFOs, um, you know, or anti-aliens, but he wasn't. He really, really wasn't. Thank you. It's a, a, a great introduction to to the um, to to the area and the subject matter of 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 your uh, your new title. Um, there, I've got so many questions in my head that I'm trying to kind of focus them into an area. I'm just conscious of we, we've got a limited window of time, and I really want to get uh, listeners to get the most uh, from from you on uh, on this occasion. Um, you mentioned you talked to sh- shamanism. Quite a lot in in this uh, in the book. Um, can you unpack that for us in terms of how it connects to the these potentially multi-dimensional beings or the ultra-terrestrials? Yeah, um, I mean shamanism is in essence the communication with otherworldly realms and the beings that live within them. Now, whether people see these as fictional or actual is up to the individual. Um, But it's something which begins at a place called the Kezem Cave in Israel as much as 400,000 years ago. Uh, And this is a a site that I cover in great detail in the book. It's a a brand new discovery. Um, And the the, the evidence of shamanism comes in the form of this wingbone of a swan, which has very clearly been modified in the sense that the feathers were removed. Uh, it's been cleaned up and you can see the marks. And it's, so it's, it's used specifically as paraphernalia to be linked to during what's known as shamanic flight. And this is where the shaman would um, you know, get into an altered state of consciousness um, or a trance state, as it's also known. And they would journey, make that journey, that shamanic journey, that flight. They would almost certainly, in this case, fly as a bird, fly as a swan, and enter into that world. And they would communicate with these intelligences, which they would probably perceive in terms of their ancestors um, and also the animals, so the spirits of the animals that would be killed on the hunt, because there would be a special symbiosis between them and, you know, let's say the deer or whatever it was that, that they would kill. I mean, you know, they would use the bones that, that, that from those animals for special purposes. There would be a complete recycling process, not just based on, you know, on, on the, the, um, the, 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 the connection with the animal and, and its spirit, but also its bones, its flesh, everything, everything. Nothing would be wasted. I mean, uh, but the thing about the Kezem Cave is that, that these people, we're also using these uh, stone balls, multifaceted stone balls, which the archaeologists there believe were also used as points of contact with otherworldly realms. Now, all this is really interesting. And I say this is the earliest evidence anywhere in the world of shamanism. It's very new stuff. It was only revealed in 2019. But the, the greatest significance about the Kezem people is that they were also undergoing great changes they would they they were inventing a number of firsts for humankind for instance they were creating the first canned food for instance this is where they would after killing um, a deer they would quickly chop off the leg and they would wrap it in a certain way so that it was uh, canned so that they could put it in their backpack go off on their journeys and get it out uh, uh, at any time and then you know, chop away at the bone and get to the, 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 the nutritious marrow inside it, which would be a meal for them. Um, the earliest um, free, freeze-fried food, um, not in what, the way we understand it, but they had a way of, of curing uh, meat and, and other products um, using um, the ash of a fire, which would mean that the, the food would last for, for, you know, again, week, many weeks, possibly even months. Um, they had the first production of a certain type of tool known as a blade. Um, you know, they were producing you know, thousands, hundreds, thousands of, of these things in the cave. They also had the first, what is described in the press as the School of Rock, 
um, where you know, they, they, they had a whole teacher-pupil thing going on in different parts of the cave where pupils would learn how to do certain types of tools and whatever. They had a sustained uh, fire pit which was being used across tens of thousands of years, the first time that, 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 that this was being used, and it also became a central focus of the cave. And, you know, many other little things like this, which might not seem like rock and roll to us, but for humanity, it meant that we were advancing in innovations and technology very quickly. And the Kezem people were becoming the smartest people on the planet at this time. So, you know, the fact that, that, that they're doing shamanism, so in other words, they're communicating with otherworldly beings, plus they're also um, becoming the smartest people on the planet. They've got to be some kind of relationship. So, you know, clearly that, that's what I would argue for. But on top of that, on the horizon, as seen from the Kezem cave, is a mountain of very special significance in the Bible. Uh, and this is Mount Gerizim that is the earliest and the true dwelling place of God. You know, the, the God, that, the God of the Israelites that will eventually be identified by Moses as Yahweh. Um, I mean, all of the early patriarchs come to this mountain and have visions and you know, build altars to, to, the, to their God. Um, and it's said that, that this God manifests in a certain way on this mountain. And the term that's used is Shekinah. Now Shekinah basically means the presence of God, um, but it very specifically relates to the manner that God manifests. And that is as light or like, you know, like some kind of blinding light, very much like the way that Moses will much later uh, encounter Yahweh on Mount Horeb where he appears you know within the burning mush and also on mount sinai where finally he will get the ten commandments and also be given instructions on how to make the ark of the covenant which becomes like a mobile box um that allows god to manifest immediately above it, it again in his form as the shekinah this blinding light basically i mean we've all seen these you know pictures of the ark of the covenant you know with this light above it that's the Shekinah. It's also known as the glory of God as well. But it, it basically means, you know, the shining light, basically. So, you know, we know, therefore, that the shining light was seen on Mount Gerizim. Well, I did a lot of research into this, and I found that historically and in modern times, Mount Gerizim is still noted for mysterious light phenomena. So I think very clearly this is what is being described in the Bible. In other words, God, you know, they they would say, look, God's there today because they could see these shining lights, these balls of light or whatever it was that, that were appearing on the mountain. But that wasn't good enough for me. I, I needed to know whether there was more. And so I went first to the Kesem cave. I talked to the archaeologists there um, and learned a lot. And that's all in the book. You know, there are chapters on, on this and what the archaeologists say. But I also then went on into the West Bank to speak to the people that live on the top of Mount Gerizim, there's a community up there of people known as the Samaritans, nothing to do with the people you go to if you want help. These are people who claim to be the true descendants of the first Israelites. Um, and they're still there today. I mean, you know, they've still got their own Bible, they've still got their own traditions, which are even older than those of, of the Jewish faith. And I talked to one of the highest ranking priests there and I said, look, you know, these these mysterious lights that, you know, we're, we're here in the past. I said, you know, are they still seen today? And he said, yes, absolutely. I, I, and I said, well, what what how do you interpret them? And yeah, I was with an interpreter, Palestinian interpreter. And, you know, he, he just came back and said, Malak, Malak which I knew, you know, I didn't even need the interpreters to tell me that that meant angel, angels. Um, and that's incredible. You know, you've got this community on the top of this mountain that sees what we call today UFOs or UAPs, and they interpret them as the messengers of God, you know, his angels, the angels, and that this is the sign of God's presence on that mountain. 
And what this does is to make Mount Gerizim what we refer to today as a portal location. And this is somewhere where mysterious lights, paranormal activity, and often cryptids, you know, weird creatures out of time and space will appear on a regular basis. And these portals are generally defined by the geology of a particular location. It's usually somewhere where tectonic plates come together and put a huge pressure on the, the, you know, the, the subsurface underground geology. Um, there will be fault lines, micro faults. There will be particular types of minerals, particularly um, uh, quartz, tourmaline, things like this, that when put under pressure, create electricity. They create flows of electricity, flows of electrons that are released into the environment to create like these bursts of activity. And this in turn creates what's known as an ionos sorry, ionospheric environment. And what this means is that it's ripe for the manifestation of something called plasma. Plasma is the full state of matter after solids, liquids, and gases. And it essentially is electrons that have been freed up from their atoms due to various processes, one of which is this pressure happening deep underground um, in a process known as piezoelectricity. And that these electrons um, will form their own electromagnetic fields around them. And they get very excited and they release tiny photons of light. Photons are you know, subatomic particles of light. And suddenly, boom, burst in front of you, you'll get like almost like a switching on of a light bulb and there'll be a light materialization in front of you. And these so-called plasmas, plasmoids or plasma constructs can be quite solid. They can be big, they can be small, they can be any color, they can be groups of light. But the most important thing is that they can be sentient. They appear to have sentience and life within them and this is something that's been noted again and again by people that have observed these lights but more importantly a number of studies have been done to do with plasma suggesting not only that it appears to to, to come alive but that it may well be that it is a medium into which deeper uh, consciousness or intelligences are able to manifest and this was first really defined in the 1960s by a theoretical physicist by the name of David Bowen, who concluded and wrote that what he referred to as a proto-intelligence was able to inhabit plasma environments. And he said that it came up from something called the implica order, something his colleague Basil highly referred to as the pre-space. And this is like a non-local medium, something that's outside of normal space and time, something that is not constrained by the normal laws of physics in which we live. Um, but the other important thing is that recent studies of plasma have suggested that it may actually harbour an extra dimension of space. Um, there's quite a lot of evidence for this. I go into this in huge detail in, in my part of the book. Um, and therefore, it could be multidimensional in nature. And if that's the case, it may well be that plasma which by the way, you know, is the light of the sun, you know, it's the light of, of, of black holes, neutron stars, lightning, um, even your telly um, glows because of plasma. Um, plasma is something which is, you know, so integrally important to the universe. I mean, some estimates have even suggest that uh, as much as 99% of the universe could be made up of plasma. Um, so, you know, it, it's natural that we should consider the possibility that life exists in a plasma state, basically. Uh, and if that's the case, that it could be multidimensional. So, you know, in, in other words, many UFOs could be manifestations of plasma. And in fact, a number of studies that have been done into the, into the UFO phenomena by governments, the British government, American government, a uh, big study in, in Norway, a place called Stalin basically concluded that the main constituent of most UFOs is plasma. So, you know, it, going back to our folks at 
the Kesem Cave and Mount Gerizim, is it possible that these lights, which are not only seen today, but, were, but which have been seen historically and may well have convinced the ancient Israelites that Yahweh, you know, inhabited Mount Gerizim, is it possible that the Kesem people were also aware of these lights, were these objects, these plasmas, and that they interacted with them and then enhanced that interaction with the intelligences through altered states of shamanism and the invention of shamanism. And through this, they gained innovation and technology. And that this is the beginning, if you like, of the whole concept of ancient aliens or was God an astronaut? That's fascinating. Um, and it, it, it's really, the fact that he said uh, Malak is, 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 is really intriguing. Um, obviously with the dissociation of, of angels being made of light, but kind of pulling that thread from uh, an, an Islamic perspective, we think of kind of Allah's three sapient cre creations of angel, jinn, and human being, and jinn being made of smokeless fire could be analogous to plasma as well as being a, a type of, of intelligence interacting with people, which is in that region is broadly as, as, as well um I, I one of the things that i was really interested and in, jumped out at me from, from from your book was in chapter nine with the um the native american people talking about their um it's a couple of accounts of, of native american people meeting uh these beings um and one detail i noted was on several occasions it was individuals who had just experienced the loss of someone they loved. They, they had a, a trauma and then went on to have a, an encounter. And it was, what jumped out at me was, is, is it's really analogous to um, the accounts of the Scottish witch trials, where somebody who um, would had confessed to being a witch and uh, talked about having a familiar who appeared to them quite frequently in the accounts they talked about having a sick child who was going to die or their partner had just died and then that kind of subsistence farming in in, in the, the the periphery of 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 scotland or just you know being incredibly poor in the in the, in the 16th uh, 1600s um you know would have meant death and equally a, a traumatic event and then these familiars would appear um it's just something that kind of jumped out at me, and I just kind of want to get your thoughts on that. Um, well, obviously a lot there, actually. I mean, firstly, obviously the Native American side of it, that that's handled by uh, Greg in the book. I mean, you know, he's one of the top experts in America on Native American mound-building cultures and, you know, the tribal peoples associated with them. Um, but he's also written books on, you know, um, UFO phenomena, paranormal phenomena as well. So he's been able to study, um, you know, the, the different uh, first peoples from that perspective. And, you know, he's got a quite a unique you know, view of it simply because he's asked the right questions of them. I mean, his own background has got, he's got, you know, got a very slight trace of Native American himself. Um, but... I, but his con big conclusion relating to Native Americans is that at the core of all of their beliefs and the purpose that they did really complex rituals was to maintain this connection, not just with the, 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 the universe, but with these intelligences that they saw as governing cyclic time and governing the evolution of their tribe and that if they did not do these rituals like the, 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 the so-called Maxim uh, ritual that, that, that he describes in detail which lasts for many many days and there are different forms of this undertaken by but by, by all well I would say probably all the different tribes is that you know that this this contact between them and these intelligences would cease and that when that contact ceased you know, they would no longer be evolving, that, that they would, there would be entropy in the sense that they would start devolving and everything would fall apart. So that it was essential for them to, 
to retain communication with what they saw as these you know star beings quite literally now whether these beings you know did genuinely come from other stars or whether they were coming from you know parallel realms or whatever i mean that that's a matter of of debate of course it is um and i think that that certainly some tribes do believe in what we call extraterrestrials but others also very clearly believe in you know transdimensional beings that that interact into connect with us and that can be communicated with through things like caves or sacred places or portal locations uh, of the sort that I would describe somewhere like Mount Gerizim. I mean, if we if we look at let's say um, uh, you know North America, uh, a similar location to Mount Gerizim would be somewhere like uh, Mount Shasta, for instance, where you know a large amount of lights are seen. Um, you know, weird light beings are are seen. People have transformative experiences that change their life, start religions and whatever. Um, plus cryptids and other paranormal activity goes on in the area, um, or the Blanca Peak uh, in the San Luis uh, Valley of Colorado, which is what I'll be going to later on this year again, uh, which also has produced huge amounts of UFO sightings uh, across the years uh, and other types of, of weird activity, and was very sacred to the to not just the the, the Navajo people who indigenous didn't to the area but several other tribes as well would come to that area uh, put put away their differences you know just for the time that they were there and see this as like some kind of sacred land that they they were able to each perform their rituals and uh, probably this brings us on to somewhere else that features quite heavily uh, in the book and that's skinwalker ranch now, Skinwalker Ranch has become the showcase portal location in the world. I mean, it's got its own TV show. Um, and during the, 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 the construction of this book, I was privileged to be able to spend some time at Skinwalker Ranch uh, talking with, you know, not just the, the, the guys, you know, that you see in the TV show, but also chatting with people that lived there and were working there. I mean, and had no real interest in UFOs. And not only did these people have their many of their own UFO sightings to, to, to relate, but, it, but the right type of geology is found there, fault lines, sandstone containing high, high quantities of quartz that would powder and become like a sort of, you know, desert sand floor that, that, was, that was so, you know, um, so powder-like that it goes in your throat, you have to wear scarves there. Uh, and all of this is exactly the ripe environment to create electron bursts and plasma manifestations. And if plasma itself has a multidimensional state, then it becomes almost like a doorway or a portal itself to allow other intelligences, other energies, whatever it is, to enter into our space-time on a temporary basis. And I think this is one of the reasons why there is so much activity there and why Native American peoples in the past saw the area of Skinwalker Ranch as a sacred land, a place that they could communicate with these otherworldly intelligences. Um, and that, you know, this is why it was almost like a no man's land between their, their tribal territories where they could come. There's a stone circle there, there's rock art, and there's obvious evidence that, that, that they saw this area as very, very important. Um, and so, you know, this is just another example of these portal locations producing UFO and paranormal phenomena today. But in the past, they were very important to, pe you know, to, to, to indigenous peoples. And obviously, I mean, I live in Britain, and places that, that produce UFO phenomena on a regular basis not only have the right geology, but also often have folklore that involves, you know, tales of goblins, of elves, of fairies carrying lights, you know, abducting people and stuff like this. You know, these are the stories that you find at locations that are today hotspots of UFOs. I've written about this in a number of books, and of course, we talk about this again in Notebook Origins of the Gods. Ah, it's absolutely fascinating. 
um the kind of fairies and 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 jinn are are um they're kind of a real kind of core subject matter for for this show we talk, talk about it a lot and um one of the things that that's that comes up frequently is actually the frequency of karst landscapes in fairy hotspots like um in 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 in, well, in area the karst area of, of the former yugoslavia and and then in kind of the burren the west of ireland um mm. yeah it there definitely seems to be some kind of correlation with, with well absolutely yeah. yeah i mean it's not just uh, quartz you know or granitic rocks that produce electricity mm. but chalk limestone mm. um you know rocks that where aquifers and water can flow through easily yeah. or be retained quite easily um become very strong places of production of, of of electrical currents and you know i mean in essence electrical currents are the flow of electrons electrons that have been freed up uh, and are going from higher to lower potentials and you know i mean this is not something that's like some kind of new age speculation and no, whole books remotely. written on yeah. this subject yeah. which i i've used as references um in this current book and if that's the case and there are certain hot spots if you like on the landscape where this is happening more frequently then it becomes these places where this type of phenomena takes place particularly where um, these electrons can flow into the local environment like caves for instance mm. like wells um, you know where where which are, are linked quite obviously to uh, fissures um, and you know aquifers and sources underground you know they become the points of connection um, mm. between this electrical activity underground and what's happening you know overground itself and I think it's important to point out that the electromagnetic fields um, of electron flows is enough to affect human consciousness you know it can induce experiences it can induce otherworldly sensations um, that are enough to allow us to perceive these coexisting invisible realms around us. Now, once again, whether you perceive those as real or imaginary or simply something that the brain needs as a sort of mindscape mm -hmm. to connect with these intelligences is up to the individual. I mean, I happen to believe that they are real um, and that the archetypes that are created uh, at different places can be utilized by higher intelligences to convey information to us. You know, in other words, you know, if you've got a site that is, let's say, haunted by a white lady, that white lady, I think, is the product of human consciousness interaction with that site over a very long period of time, perhaps thousands of years. But it's it's you know, although it's a genius loci, the sort of spirit of the place, mm -hmm. I believe that under certain, circumstance, certain circumstances, um, it can be a, a taken over um, using processes of quantum entanglement to convey information to us. In other words, you know, if we go to a certain site and we find ourselves in communication with, let's say, that white lady, we might not be speaking to somebody who lived a few hundred years ago who happened to drown there. We are actually in communication with an intelligence that's beyond that. It's simply using that archetype to convey thoughts and ideas to us, like the Kesem Cape. They almost certainly wouldn't have seen, you know, the, the intelligences associated with the lights as extraterrestrials or transdimensional beings. Of course not. Mm -hmm. They would have seen them as manifestations of their ancestors and as the spirits of the animals killed in the hunt. And even though they may have thought that they were communicating with these sources, it may well be that these transdimensional you know, beings were utilizing these archetypes for their own purposes. And right. that's why shamanism is so important because it allows that possibility of communication with these higher intelligences mm -hmm. that have coexisted with us since the beginning and may well have been there since we were in Africa, you know, as much as 2 million years ago. I mean, 
what I show is that this communication almost certainly began once we invented fire, because you know once we were able to you know um, to, to to repeat the creation of fire, you know, using striker lights or whatever it was, or carrying round you know a, a lighted piece of, of of wood that that was struck by lightning, whatever it was that allowed us to make the first fires and to sustain them meant that we would have to, you know, throw on uh, plants to keep them going, you know, and quite clearly at some point, some of those plants would have been psychoactive in nature. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, so people would have gone into a shifted state of consciousness. Now, clearly to start off with, they wouldn't have known what was going on, but eventually it could have taken hundreds, of, maybe even thousands of years that they would re have realized that certain plants were having an effect upon them and it was allowing otherworldly contact to take place. So they would have enhanced it by seeking out specific plants and using them. And this seems to coincide perfectly with the change of use of stone tools from what we call pebble tools, which were simply you know, pick up a pebble that's come out of a river and smash it on the ground so that it's pointed in some way and then use it as a tool to the creation of the first hand axe, mm -hmm. what uh, in archaeology is referred to as an Acheulean hand axe. And these are beautiful, multifaceted objects, the objects of beauty, objects of art, which were like the sort of Swiss army knife of their day. And the earliest one of these was about 1.75 million years ago. And it was found at a site west of Lake Takama, in what is today Kenya. And this coincides pretty well with the first sustained use of fire. So, you know, is it possible that the design for the Acheulean hand axe came through altered states of consciousness and seeing geometric folds mm. and communicating with what they perceived as otherworldly beings. In other words, the construction of that hand axe, which, by the way, would go on to be used right the way down to around 200,000 years ago, I mean, almost unchanged, was that the product of the earliest connection, communication with these transdimensional beings. I think there is a strong possibility that the answer is yes. Right, right. It's a, it's a remarkable proposition, you know, and we're dealing with such vast lengths of time that it's almost hard to, com to compute, you know, um, the vast expanse of time. And um, I suppose thinking about time and thinking about how intelligence might be communicating with us in in this way and and then kind of a, as you uh hypothesize that it may be appearing to us in ways that are relative to us in the space and time and kind of our, our understanding of the world at that that moment the, the white lady the ancestor i mean the terianthropic figure um Do you think that we, I have to think about how I'm going to phrase the question? But do you think is it a case of like that relationship that we have with with whatever this intelligence is that they are existing outside of time? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, for us, time goes forward. Mm -hmm. um, we can't really perceive it in in any other way. Although there is a certain amount of scientific evidence to suggest that. You know, we can affect the future and the future can affect us. Mm -hmm. But the best way of perceiving time outside of the three dimensions of space and one of time that we deal with is quantum entanglement. Because, I mean, this is the idea that twin, that particles can be, become linked or twinned and that no matter how far away they get from each other, they still retain an instantaneous um, link. So if you tweak one, the other one will tweak in the equal and opposite direction. But of course, we're not just dealing with one particle here. We're dealing with you know multiple systems of entangled particles that until recently were considered to only have an effect in the microcosmic world, you know, in the subatomic level. 
But within the past five years, various experiments have been done that have proved that entanglement affects the macrocosmic world. In other words, the world in which we live. Now, not only can this now um, provide possible answers for things like telepathy, mind over matter, and possibly even precognition, but the fact is that there is no real time on, on a quantum level, particularly if you're dealing with non-local mediums, you know, through which this information or energy transfer must take place if it's instantaneous. So there is no reason why one entangled particle could go into the future, whilst another one could go into the past. And if that's the case, then you can create entangled systems of particles where, you know, one is in the future and one of the you know, parts of it, you know, the other part of it is in the past. And I mentioned precognitions there, and this is a very good example because, you know, if telepathy can be explained using quantum entanglement, then it could explain why we have premonitions. I mean, you know, I'll give you a good example. Uh, Mike's wife was in a, a vehicle and she was just in a car going along and she started to sort of drift and saw this, this road accident in front of her. I mean, you know, she saw it in great detail, car come over central reservation, all the cars split to try and avoid this and whatever. And she sort of just woke up out of this, this daydream and thinking it was happening. And of course it wasn't, but five minutes further down the same motorway, this is exactly what happened, identical. And yet she told the person she was within the car. So they, you know, they were able to say, oh, my God, you know, five minutes ago, you saw this. Now, this is perfect example of a, of a, of a premonition um, because it, it's almost like your future self is sending back this information to your present self, to, uh, almost like a warning, warning, warning. There is a, a danger ahead, directly ahead, on the road ahead. And it could well be that this is something that was installed into us you know, millions of years ago when we were, let's say, in a jungle or a forest environment and a dangerous animal was, you know, about to attack us and it could mean life or death. And that information could be then sent back to yourself five minutes earlier so that you take a different path, you know, like a sign, an omen right. of, of, of what is to come. And the, the explanation of that is quantum entanglement. And if, that, and if that's correct, then what it means is that the past, the present and the future all have an interrelationship, that they're all still being played out in the here and now. I mean, you know, in other words, if somebody does something in the 16th century, you know, let's say they murder somebody, then that's still being played out forever and will do forever, probably until the end of the universe. Mm -hmm. And that if somebody goes to the location where that murder takes place, there is a possibility that they could see that murder taking place. Right. Of course, what would we call that? Seeing a ghost, mm -hmm. you know, a haunting. Yeah. You know, because in my opinion, I don't think hauntings are simply, you know, the, the, the replay of some tape of the past. I mean, in some ways you could interpret it that way. But I think you are really seeing what's happening in that instance in the 16th century of murder taking yeah. place. So, you know, in other words, so so if you then take this on to what I've written about in the book to do with these objects being plasma containing these multidimensional intelligences that exist outside of normal space time, then a lot of people, when they see them, that they feel like this incredible connection with them. They feel as if they know the intelligence involved, as if that intelligence is always been been there for them that, that that you know since they were a child and they then spend you know the next part of their life possibly even till they die trying to sustain that link that contact with it you know they want to keep going out to the spot see if it'll come back or they want to go to another site where ufos are seen that this it's this contact and i think that this is borne out the fact that these intelligences if they live if they exist outside of normal space time, when you make contact with them on a certain day, they have every opportunity of going back to when you were a child in a, a cot, a, you know, as a baby, and 
making a link with you at the same time, at the, as well as going all the way forward to the point that you die and saying, hi, we're still here. And they're doing it all at the same time, the same moment. Mm -hmm. To us, there are many years in between. But if they exist outside of normal space time, they have that opportunity. They have this omnipotent or omnipresent quality to them, which brings us on to, you know, why are they here? You know, what, what are they doing? And I think that we have to see it, that, the, that, they're, that they are super intelligences. They are so far beyond our own understanding of life that, again, we are just clutching at straws to try and understand why they were here. And it is even possible that they see us in the same capacity that we might see an ant nest, you know, the movements of, of ants. But, but the, the thing is that I think what's important for the future is that we not only recognize their existence and how to communicate with them, but we show them that we are ready to move on to the next stage, that, that we, are, we are not just aware of them, can communicate with mm -hmm. them, but we want them to, you know, to take our hand onto the next stage of evolution whatever that that be and to do that i think we've got to show them that we have great intelligence ourselves you know i mean it's like i talked about ants there i mean you know we look at ants we might prod them you know some people will kill them uh some people make studies of them and publish papers on them but that's it ants are always going to be ants unless one day they all gather together climb up your wall and write out your name and if that ever happened, you'd have to take notice of them. You'd have to respect them and treat them very, very differently. So we have to do the same mm -hmm. in terms of these transdimensional intelligences that I believe are behind UFOs. And when I say UFOs, I don't mean all. Mm -hmm. I do believe that there is absolute room that we could be dealing with you know, physical yeah. uh, aliens mm -hmm. and, um, you know, alien hardware coming here there's far too much evidence of that but i think what's important is not to confuse the two things together or just to assume that everything is mm -hmm. nuts and bolts spacecraft and flesh and blood aliens because that i think will prevent us knowing more about these true intelligences that seem to be behind the manifestation of many plasma or light-based ufos absolutely fascinating and there's so much there I, I really really enjoyed um the the hour and I'm, I'm i'm conscious of of time and in terms of um your your availability i know uh, is 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 condensed at the minute so for anybody who wants to find out more uh, about your, uh, your your new title and indeed your back catalogue work, where is the best place for them to follow you or pick up a copy of, of the book? Yeah, um, my, my website is andrewcollins.com. You can email me via that. Um, but in addition to that, obviously, I'm also on all social media. Um, the links are there on the opening page of the website if you want to follow me. Uh, in any capacity uh, and of course the book is origins of the gods um kezem cave skinwalkers and contact with transdimensional intelligences by myself andrew collins and my colleague uh, greg little available from amazon barnes and noble and all other online bookstores basically so that's it um if you want to come with us uh, to places like turkey we do tours to a place like Gobekli Tepe and the ancient cultures there mm. uh, and we're also going to Egypt next year but all those details will be available on social media and on our websites in due course. Deadly. Well Andrew it's been it's been a real pleasure real pleasure um, to have you on the show and thank you so much for your for your time and um, I hope you've made a full recovery from from Covid I know there's a rough dose going around so I hope you're feeling better. Yeah, I'm fine now. Yeah, thank you very much. No worries, no worries.
there you have it. Ultra-terrestrial beings coming through portals, delivering knowledge and developing human innovation and technology. And who's not to say possibly our intelligence and ability to ideate. Um, I hope you all enjoyed that. I certainly did. I found Andrew's, I always find Andrew's work fascinating and um, hugely informative and well-researched. Uh, so I hope you guys uh, will check out his work, check out the links below and uh, and go for it. Right, that's it from me. I'm Dara Mason and you'll be listening to The Spirit Box. Take care. Talk soon.